Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Amen. Thank you, Kathy. Kids, you can go to class. You may be seated. And uh, it's my privilege to, especially if you're new with us this morning, I guess, to introduce you to our lead pastor, Jonathan Walker. You can come on up and uh, let's give him a hand this morning. He's with us this morning to continue our series in Deuteronomy, Living Life on the Edge. It's Life on the Edge, right? Living on the Edge. Life on the Edge. I, I know it's edgy, and I know you're going to be edgy this morning. Well, <laughs> we'll see. I, um, if you know anything um, about me, I, it's not that I actually don't mind kicking sacred cows over. I actually find a strange delight in kicking over sacred cows. Anybody else like that? Occasionally? Wow, I'm the only one. All right, this is great. We're going to have a good time together. Um, summer in Alaska, just so you know, if you're new to Alaska, doesn't get any better than this. Like, this has been an incredible summer. And I'm so excited that winter is going to be just like it this year, um, thanks to global warming. Um, it's working in our benefit uh, before... All right, whatever. It's, uh, it's going to be miserable this winter, so enjoy this um, right now. This is as good as it's going to get. How many of you have been able to get out, do some fishing, enjoy the outdoors, plant a garden, ride a motorcycle? Four people here, Chris. What are you guys doing in Palmer? Like plant potatoes all the time? Come on. This is summer. It's time to enjoy ourselves. Um, I have been running hard since Wednesday. In fact, I got up this morning, didn't even know where I was. Um, uh, we headed over to Main Bay, landed in Whittier, took a boat out and spearfished for a bunch of salmon on Wednesday. That was a good time. And a side benefit, no one in our group got shot. Um, so that's a huge plus whenever you're spearfishing. Um, we're going to jump into part two of our series um, in the book of Deuteronomy. And I had the chance to go back and listen um, yesterday to Pastor Chris's message from last week. Such a great word. Um, I was actually listening to it uh, at one and a half speed. If you can imagine, Pastor Chris on one and a half speed. Um, my girls came in the room and they're like, man, he talks really fast. I was like, girls, I actually have it slowed down. Um, this is Pastor Chris. Uh, listening to it, such a great message. There were two things that really stood out to me, but the thing that really left out, the big idea um, was that if you and I will learn from our past, we can change our future. Not just our past, but God actually identifies this current generation in Israel with the generation that had passed away in the wilderness. And what's happening in Deuteronomy as we come into it is actually the culmination of a series of events starting all the way in Exodus. In fact, if you've been around Church on the Rock for very long at all, you've probably discovered that we're kind of just making our way through the Bible um, because we figure all of it's important and to get the meta-narrative, the big story, um, it's important to start in the beginning. And so we started in Genesis and then we moved to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. That was a thriller. Um, any book named Numbers, you better buckle up. Uh, but it was called Numbers for a very specific reason because um, there's a census in the beginning of Numbers 
And there's a second census at the end of Numbers. And what happens in between is actually really what the book of Numbers is about. In fact, the original title was Wilderness Wandering or The Wilderness, which is a lot more intriguing title than Numbers. But either way, we started with a census and we ended with a census. And what you discover is that in the middle, in the book of Numbers, Israel is brought right to the edge of the promise. They are ready to enter the land. And some of the spies go in and they come back with a great report, but they also come back with a really negative report. And the report is this. The giants are too big. The land is too fortified. It's a beautiful land. It's everything that God said that it was, except we can't take it. But God had already told them that he was giving it to them. And because they lacked faith, the consequences that the Lord brings are 40 years of wandering until all of the fighting-aged men who were there the first time are now dead and buried in the wilderness. And now in Deuteronomy, they're living on the edge of the promise again. And the question in Deuteronomy is, will this generation have faith to take what God had already provided? Which brings me to my first point, which is unconditional. This is a word that I've discovered that the church has allowed to be misused. When we talk about things like unconditional love or unconditional acceptance, what do we mean by those things? Because what I've discovered over the years is that often our experiences color our expectations, or you could say it the other way around. Our expectations will color our experiences. We usually see whatever it is that we're looking for. You'll find what you're looking for. You go to a church, and if you expect there to be gossip there, guess what you're going to find? What you perceive as gossip, right? It, we tend to see whatever it is that we're expecting. I um, got in my car. I got back uh, last week sometime um, from our trip to Uganda. I got in my car on Tuesday morning to come over to our staff meetings, and when I jumped in the car, the first thing I heard, because the Christian radio station was on, because all good Christians only listen to Christian radio stations, <laughs> Christian radio station happened to be on, I think my wife had borrowed my car or something, um, uh, and the first thing that I heard was, um, the survey is in, it is absolutely conclusive, the number one thing that non-Christians dislike about Christians is that they are too, what do you think? Judgmental. Nailed it. Surveys in, the number one thing that non-Christians dislike about Christians is that Christians are too judgmental. And then they immediately said this, let's go to the phone lines and let's ask the question, how can we be less judgmental? Which is not my first question. But my first question is, are we? And how do you actually define judgmental? Like, what do you mean when you say that I'm judgmental? What are we talking about? And once I know that, then I could say, okay, then are we actually that? We live in this world where we feel compelled to never pass judgment on anything, at least not publicly. We feel this obligation to like, love, hug, 
actions and attitudes that Jesus blatantly calls unholy and unhealthy so that we don't appear as though we're judgmental. I heard a quote recently from a speaker that I really enjoy, I really appreciate, but I totally disagreed with this statement. He said this, he said, I try to remember this rule. If I'm judging someone, I'm not loving them. You can't judge someone and love them at the same time. What if Israel had believed that was true about God? Because Israel has experienced this unmerited favor, this undeserved mercy and blessing, and at the same time, they have experienced severe consequences for their disobedience. They have been judged by God and deeply loved by him at the same time. But what if they believed that you could not pass judgment on something, you could not bring consequences on someone and love them unconditionally at the same time? They might have come to a very different conclusion about God in the Old Testament. In fact, maybe you grew up with a different conclusion about the God of the Old Testament. You're like, that God, that's an angry God. That God's really frustrated. I'm so glad by the New Testament he got on his medication and now he's a happy God, right? Like now we got the Jesus God and he's like boyfriend God. Like Jesus is so great and, and I'm glad we're not living in But it was the same God. His love was unconditional in the Old Testament. They were brought into relationship through faith in the Old Testament. He was, mercies were new every morning in the Old Testament too. But what if Israel had believed that God could not love them and judge them at the same time. They would have taken a very different view of the God of the Old Testament. Try applying this logic to a bunch of different disciplines. Try applying it to parenting. Um, uh, I'm, my kids never do anything wrong, but I'm imagining that your kids probably did. So imagine your kid comes running in the room and they're like, Jimmy stabbed me with a fork. And you're like, I can see that. It's still sticking out of your arm. But listen, honey, I love Jimmy and I love you. And so I can't pass judgment on this. And I can't bring consequences on Jimmy because I can't love him and judge him at the same time. It's a horrible parenting model, right? Imagine if you tried to apply it to um, policing Right, An officer is at home, he's got his uniform on, he just stopped by for a quick coffee and donut or something. Like He's there at the house and his wife comes running in the house and she's carrying two big bags with dollar signs on them and she's wearing a little black mask. She's like, you're not going to believe it, but you can retire. Like, I just robbed the bank. And he thinks to himself, well, I can't report this because I love her. I can't pass judgment on her behavior, and I, I'm going to have to quit my job or something. I couldn't judge her and love her at the same time. Or imagine we applied it to teaching, which we've actually tried to apply it to the teaching arena. And a teacher has a student, and the entire class knows that all Johnny has done is pick his nose and eat glue the entire semester. Like, he hasn't done a single assignment. He hasn't been paying attention, and yet she is about to hand out the grades, and he gets an A+, plus, just like everyone else who put in all the work. That's not fair. Listen, class, I can't judge Johnny. I can't make a verdict at the same time and love him. We would think it was ridiculous applied to all kinds of other things, and yet it sounds so noble when it's said in the social media arena. 
I try to remember this rule. If I'm judging someone, I'm not loving them. You can't love someone and judge them at the same time. Here's the definition of judgmental. You ready for this? Of or concerning the use of judgment. How dare you? How dare you be judgmental? How dare you use judgment? That's literally the definition, or to judge, to form an opinion or a conclusion about. Doesn't sound so bad when you say it that way, does it? Typically what people, I think, mean or they intend to mean is that um, when they call you judgmental is that they believe you've passed eternal damnation on them. And that isn't our job. You and I actually don't have the capacity to do that. That's all God's business. But to have judgment and to pass judgment, to make conclusions or decisions about things is actually critical to our ability to be able to live and thrive in the kingdom of heaven. We live in a world where withholding our blessing from someone's decision is called bigotry and having an opinion is considered hatred. That's the kind of world we live in. It's the social media world we live in for sure where if you don't like, love, or hug everything that someone posts, whether Jesus would agree with it or not, the simple act of not approving of it is considered bigotry. And when you and I withhold our blessing, it's considered hatred. But here's my thought. I I think before I try and cure a disease that someone else told me that I had, I should probably get a second opinion first. I mean, think about it. If one doctor told you that you had cancer, you'd want to get a second opinion on what was really going on in your life, and yet we've allowed the world to actually label the church with something without ever asking the question, what do you mean, and are we actually that? Thus, we go and try to solve a problem that might not actually exist, at least not at the level that we're told that it does. That's a really dangerous thing to do because only a fool would believe a fool's diagnosis of their problem. And here's the, here's the real challenge. Uh, we are um, actually living in a world where I'm going to embrace a hater's hashtag of me. That must be what I am if enough people say that I am that thing without ever pausing and saying, is that true. And if it is, don't get me wrong, we got plenty of things we need to fix. Like we got all kinds of issues in the church. But currently what we're attempting to do is solve a problem that someone else told us that we have. And I actually believe it might be doing damage to the church because it isn't actually the job of the church to fix the perceptions of the world. I'll say that one more time because it was so good, Pastor. I know, man, that was a good word. Yeah. It is not the job of the church to fix the perceptions of the world. It is the job of the church to be faithful to Jesus, to be obedient to Jesus. The rest is his business, right? But if I believe it's my job to dress Jesus up enough in the world that they'll ask him on a date, I've already got problems because I'm just telling you, he might look good on Tinder, but when he gets tough, they ain't going to like him at all. Like, oh, that'll preach all day. What are you guys doing, huh? Are you playing Panda Pop there? Come on. Like, listen, you need to understand this because it's so important to the way that we engage in the world. If I have embraced the identity that the world has labeled the church with, I could be trying to solve a problem that doesn't actually exist. All in an effort to make 
the church look good to the world. And here's the thing. The job of the church is to be faithful and obedient to Jesus. And faithfulness and obedience to Jesus will inevitably lead you into conflict with the world. It will happen. Even if we were doing everything perfectly when it comes to obedience and faithfulness to Jesus, we are actually guaranteed by Jesus that faithfulness and obedience will lead us into conflict with the world. In fact, Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, Jesus speaking, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Or Mark 13, 13 and Luke 21, verse 17, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And just so we can get all the gospels in, John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. This is a both-and principle that when the church is actually being who the church is supposed to be in the world, when we do things like Impact Alaska and we love our city, people will fall in love with the church. But if you believe everyone will fall in love with the church, you have misunderstood the words of Jesus because faithfulness and obedience to Jesus will inevitably lead you into conflict with the world. And that does not mean you're doing something wrong. It could actually be the byproduct of doing something wrong. Right. Man, that's such a good title. Thank you. Listen, I, you know, if you know me at all, that I don't like vegetables. And the truth is, you can put as much cheese on broccoli as you want, and I'm still not going to eat it. Like, you could dress Jesus up all you want, and it's inevitable. There will be people who actually dislike you more the more you become like Jesus. Get over it. It is the reality of the world we find ourselves in. Here's what I would say. Unconditional love does not require unconditional approval nor my personal blessing on your every decision. Unconditional love does not require unconditional approval nor my personal blessing on your every decision. And withholding approval of someone else's decisions is not the same thing as withholding love from them. Now here's why this matters for Deuteronomy, because God loves the nation of Israel unconditionally, and he disapproves and disciplines them frequently. And if they believe that God's unconditional approval is the same thing as unconditional love, they will come to the conclusion that God must not actually love them. And we have the danger in our own lives of concluding the same thing. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. Be careful to obey all the commands I am giving you today. Then you will live and multiply, and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If I believe unconditional love requires unconditional blessing and approval, I will misread 
God's word, and I will misrepresent his character in the world. God has invited us into, and Israel, into a covenant relationship, not a legal contract. And there's actually a difference between covenant and contract. And I think many of us, as Christians, still try to live in a contractual relationship with God, or a transactional relationship with God, which, to be really specific, is exactly how idolatry works. These transactional or contractual relationships aren't rooted in love or relationship. They're rooted in legally binding language. This is a tit-for-tat. If you do this, then I will do that. And in other words, when I bring my sacrifice, when I bring my offering, when I obey, now God owes me. And what happens in contractual or transactional relationships is you get put in the driver's seat. You can expect that if you did your part, God will do his part in the way that you want him to do it. It's like when you go to the grocery store and you're there to buy groceries. You fill up your cart and you've just spent your kid's college inheritance um, now. Um, but you're at the checkout and you just want to get out of there because you're all done spending money. And you don't uh, have this deep affection and love for the cashier. And you spend some time eating together there at the register and, and you break bread. And now you're going to actually, you just are, it's a transaction. Here's my stuff. Here's my money. Can I take it? Yes, you can. There doesn't have to be love or affection present in that relationship. Here's the difference. Love and affection are not required in a contract or transaction, but love and affection are actually central to a covenant relationship. That's why I tell young couples all the time, and even old couples maybe who have believed this lie, that if you came into marriage with the 50-50 mentality, I'm going to go 50 yards, you go 50 yards, we'll meet in the middle neath that old Georgia pine, I'll start walking your way, you start walking mine. I know it's not on the Christian radio station, but I heard it when I was a kid. Like, like, if you go 50 and I go 50, our marriage will be great. And here's the problem. Never works. In marriage, the commitment has to be, I'm going to go 100 every time, and you're going to go 100 every time. And there are going to be times I can only go 25, and you're going to meet me in 75. But if our marriage is going to work, we both have to have a full commitment to this relationship that I'm going to go the distance even when you can't move off the goal line. Like, I will meet you wherever you're at. That's what covenant relationship looks like. And God is frequently meeting Israel way past the 50-yard line because he's in covenant with them. And so Moses will spend the first part of Deuteronomy reminding Israel of God's covenant. Deuteronomy 1, verses 30 to 32. The Lord your God is about to go ahead of you. You're on the promised land for a second time. You're right on the edge of entering into all he has. The Lord your God is about to go ahead of you. He will fight for you just as you saw him do in Egypt and in the desert where you saw him carrying you along like a father carries his son. This he did everywhere you went until you came to this very place. You couldn't go the distance. I got you. It's like hiking with my girls. We were looking at old pictures here recently. As we we're going through the pictures, I was seeing these hikes and climbs and different things that we had done, and there they are on my shoulders because they just couldn't make it. But I'll carry you because that's what relationship looks like. And God is describing the way he's interacted with them from the time they left Egypt until this very moment, standing at the edge of the promise again. And he's saying, I've got you. I made a covenant with you, and I will not abandon that covenant. 
So God rescues and he nurtures Israel and he chastens and disciplines them. Deuteronomy 8, verses 1, 3. Think about it. Just as a parent disciplines a child, the Lord your God disciplines you for your own good. So obey the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. And this brings me to possibly the most important word in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the word remember. The key way that Israel is going to enter the promise this time, when they missed it last time, is by remembering. We just got back from Uganda, and in Uganda they have lots of elephants. In fact, we saw lots of elephants. Um, one of the guys who works for Pastor Stephen Mayanja's ministry has a little uh, safari tour business on the side, and so he took us out for a little safari tour, and I believe I have a picture of one of the elephants here that we saw. I don't know if you know this, um, elephants have extraordinary memories. In fact, they can remember things up to 30 or 40 years later. They can remember faces up to 30 or 40 years later. In fact, one of the research projects that they did on these game preserves is um, a young elephant in a herd led by a matriarch went through a season of drought 30 years ago. And during that season of drought, they left the game preserve in search of water. And they found some water. And then the drought ended and they returned. 30 years pass, and now this young elephant is the matriarch in the herd, and they have another drought. They haven't left the preserve since that last time 30 years ago, but when the drought comes, that elephant now leads the entire herd back to the exact same spot and begins to dig with her foot in the sand to find the water that's buried underneath. It's extraordinary. In fact, elephants are one of the few animals um, and a handful of about five mammals that actually recognize their own reflection in a mirror when they see it a second time. Like, oh, that's me. Unlike my little dog that's like, ah, attack. Like, elephants have extraordinary memories. Humans, not so much. It's, it's why, really, the, the president of Ukraine is so concerned because our news cycle has run itself out, and he's wondering if anybody remembers what's going on in his country because we have really short-term memories as humans. And so the Lord is going to remind Israel. I mean, if you were to look at Genesis through Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, four books of the Bible, if you were to look through Genesis through Numbers, the words remember or the word forget show up 11 times. They show up 24 times in Deuteronomy alone. It is a theme of Deuteronomy because when we finally get what we want, we're actually prone to forget where it came from. We're prone to forget how we got there, and God knows this about us. So Deuteronomy 8, verse 10, after entering the land, when you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But that is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I am giving you today. For when you have become prosperous and built fine homes to live in, and when your freezers are full of fish and moose, and your bank accounts are fat, and your investments are flourishing along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget 
the Lord your God. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness. Verse 16, he did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did all this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed with your ancestors with an oath. But I assure you of this, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, worshiping and bowing down to them, you will certainly be destroyed. Here's what I've learned over the years, that comfort and security are often followed by amnesia and idolatry. That's what he's warning Israel of. In fact, I have friends currently that I've been in mentorship relationships with who started their own business. They've been wildly successful. I mean, wildly successful. And over the years, as we've had conversation and built relationship with one another, what I've heard them describe over and over and over again is how blessed they are, how good God has been to them. He's restored their marriage. He's blessed their business. And they're showing up at church with their families and with their kids, and they're growing and flourishing. And yet right now, I see in them a tendency to forget where it came from. It happens for pastors when their church is flourishing. It happens for people when their business is flourishing. It happens all over the place because there's a tendency when we're thriving to begin to believe that my hands made this possible. I can't pause and go to church this Sunday. If I quit working, the blessings will stop flowing. It is actually the very definition of idolatry. I begin to worship what my own hands have created. Look at the wealth that I built. Look at the security I built. Look at the comfort that I built for our family. I couldn't possibly give up a day of the week and lose some of that. I couldn't possibly stop working for a day and Sabbath with my family. I couldn't possibly make it to church this Sunday because this is the time to make hay while the sun's shining. And what we begin to fundamentally believe is that my own hands created my own success. It's the very definition of idolatry, worshiping what my hands have made. When we're prosperous, we can become prideful, and pride can lead us to worship what our hands have created. And so I need this reminder that even my ability to create wealth and security was a gift from God. I mentioned to you we were just out in Main Bay and Prince William Sound spearfishing. Like, it was literally like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, just outside the hatchery, the commercial opener isn't happening, and we're just in the water. Every shot you take, you're hitting a fish. And I'm like, man, I am so good. So proud of myself. And then I think to myself, but I only got here because my friend has a super cub and he flew us to Whittier. And then another friend asked somebody to pick us up at the landing strip. And that friend took us over to a boat that another friend had. And that friend ran us out in his boat at like $1,000 a gallon to get out to Main Bay. And the only reason I even got to get in the water to shoot some fish is because a whole bunch of other people were actually blessing what we were doing easy to forget how we got where we were. I may have overstated how important the word remember is. Deuteronomy 4 verse 9, watch out 
Be careful never to forget what you have seen. Do not let these memories escape from your mind as long as you live. Be sure to pass them on to your children and to your grandchildren. But maybe the most important words in the book of Deuteronomy are the words listen and the word obey. The words remember and the word forget show up 24 times in the book of Deuteronomy, but the word obey all by itself shows up more than 70 times in Deuteronomy. You know why? Because it's not sufficient to just remember if you and I are unwilling to actually obey. Just remember what the Lord said. Remember what the Lord had done in the past and yet do nothing about it in the present is actually really dangerous. It leads to an apathy that I see all over the place in the church, in my own life, in those around me. Deuteronomy 5, verse 12 is the Sabbath command. Moses is going to re-give the law in Deuteronomy. He's going to add some pieces and make some additions. But one of the most distinct pieces for my family is this Sabbath command. The Sabbath command shows up in Exodus. And my family tries to weekly observe a Sabbath. We start in the evening. It runs through to the evening of the next day. And there are two candles that we light at the Sabbath celebration. My wife will braid the challah bread. And we light the two candles. And for Israel, the candles represent remember and observe or remember and obey. In fact, I had this ring made in Israel, and in Hebrew is written on it, remember and observe. Because it's a reminder to me on a weekly basis that it's not sufficient to just remember the commands of the Lord. I'm actually called to live in observation of them, obedience to them. And so my family and I will sit down. My girls have it memorized now. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter. And then we go through all the animals in our house and all the birds and the fish and everything. And like nobody's supposed to work on this day. And here's the reason. Remember, you were slaves in the land of Egypt. You couldn't even deliver yourself out of there. And now you're in the promised land with cities you didn't build, harvesting from vineyards you didn't plant. Now you're in the land of promise. Remember, you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God, he's the one who led you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, for that reason, stop working one day a week. And remember, it's the Lord who labored on your behalf. You didn't save yourself. You didn't create your own wealth. This idea of remembering and observing. There's a relationship between remembering and obeying that's really critical and involves a really critical piece called listening. I invite the worship team to come as I describe what this looks like. Um, the older I get, the more cautious I am when I tell stories about my children. My family's over at the Wasilla campus. My girls are now like attending um, a kid's class and then they want to serve in a kid's class. And, uh, but whenever I tell stories about my kids, I'm usually pretty careful. And, and so I asked my daughter, I said, can I tell this story about you? Um, but I won't use any names. And she said, that's fine. As long as you don't use my name, you can tell the story about me. I said, I used to do that with our son, Caleb, who's 25 now and he's married. I used to do that with Caleb. But when I told a story and didn't use a name, everyone knew who it was because we only had one kid. Now I have three girls, and so like we can get away with this. Are you okay with it? Yeah, I'm okay with it. So uh, I'm not going to use her name, but um, we were out. We've gotten this um, 5,000-gallon pool, you know, those things that are like three feet deep and take 
three years to fill up, and our girls are just having a blast in this pool, and they just go out of their minds when they're in it. And, um, and then we have this old hot tub um, that's like a lukewarm tub, um, and then my girls will play in the pool, and they'll come over and get in the hot tub. And one of my girls, the unnamed one, um, went over, and she was getting into the pool, and the ladder's like old and rickety, you know, like um, if the, the, day, the day's coming, the moment's coming that one of themselves will cut themselves on it, and I hope they have tetanus shots, because like that's how bad the ladder is, right? And so, but they think it's the greatest thing in the world to get on top of this rickety ladder and cannonball into the pool. And so I'm sitting over in the lukewarm tub, and I'm looking over at unnamed child, and she's climbing up the ladder, and she's about to cannonball in, and I'm like, hey, unnamed one, don't cannonball into the pool. Don't jump into the pool off of the ladder. She actually, she doesn't hear a word I'm saying the first time, so I it with, you know, the first time was like super gracious and kind and tender, and the next time it was less so, like, hey, you with no name. Don't jump off of the ladder into the pool. And this is when she's like, I heard you. And if I wasn't enjoying the lukewarm tub so much, I would have gotten out and gone over there like, what'd you say, girl? Like, mm-mm, you didn't. I heard you. So I turn around and like literally a nanosecond later, I turn back around and what's she doing? Yeah, yeah, she's just like your kid. I'm like, hey, you with no name. I just said, don't jump off the ladder into the pool. And this is when she says this. Oh, I thought you said, don't jump off of the ladder onto the floaties. What does it even sound like? Don't jump off the ladder into the pool. But she was sincere. You know why? Because she wasn't paying attention. She actually wasn't listening to what I was saying. She had her own agenda, her own ideas. She thought that she was obeying. But what she was actually doing is not listening. This is really important because the question that I want to ask you today is, what is the last thing that you heard God say to you? What was the last command that you heard from him. Maybe it's in a really personal way. Maybe it's why you were reading the word. Maybe it's about forgiving that person. Maybe it's about accountability and that addiction. Maybe it's about, what is it? What's the last thing that you heard the Lord saying to you? And the second question is, have you done anything about it yet? I often hear people talking about, I want to hear the voice of the Lord. I want God to tell me the next thing to do. I need direction in this decision in life or in this relationship. I want God to speak to me. And yet, often when I ask that question, there's a last command that he gave to them. And they haven't even taken a step in obedience to that thing. And here's what I want you to know. You shouldn't expect to hear the next thing until you've done the last thing that he asked of you. He is leading you, but there is a process to it. And if you want to know what the next thing is, it's worth pausing for a moment and asking what the last thing was. Because it isn't sufficient to just remember it. It isn't sufficient to simply hear it. It actually requires action on our part. I'm going to invite you to stand with us. Maybe you sense that you're on the edge of a new season. 
I think the Lord is continually leading us from what he describes in the scriptures as glory to glory. He's continually leading us to the next thing, more fully into relationship with him and more fully into the promise that he's made to us. And maybe you feel like you're right there. You're on the edge of that thing. And in the book of Hebrews, the author takes this event in the nation of Israel, this moment in the history of Israel, and he drags it into a New Testament context for us. And here's how it sounds when it's said to us, living under the blood of Jesus and the reign of the church. Hebrews 3, verse 7, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. When they tested me in the wilderness, there your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them, and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. Verse 12, be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. Remember what it says today. When you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. So God's rest, God's promise is there for people to enter. But those who first heard the good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his promise. And that time is right now. The promise of God illustrated in the deliverance of Israel, the entering into the promised land for Israel, the consequences for Israel, the promise of God was actually pointing towards this moment right here today that when you hear his voice he's pleading with you do not harden your heart as Israel did when he's bringing that challenge or that rebuke or that correction or that calling what was the last thing that you heard from him may it was an uh, invitation to be unwavering in your leadership as the head of your household, to model to your family what passion looks like in pursuit of Jesus. Maybe it was wholehearted surrender in every area of your life. Maybe it was a sacrifice of some sort that he was calling you to. But what was the last thing that you heard from him? And have you done it yet? And so Jesus, right now, right here, in this day, in this moment, we come before you, our hearts laid open wide. You can see all of it anyways. And we say, search me, try me. Would you pull everything up by the roots that doesn't belong there so that the fruit that we bear would be the fruit of your Holy Spirit and that your church would fully enter into all of the promise you have made. And we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.